0: 1 Thessalonians and chapter um, 2. Now let's read God's word together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory." Well, let's pray that God will speak to us from His Word. Our Father, it is Your voice that we want to hear. It is our conviction that the Bible is Your Word. And so we ask with expectant hearts that You would speak to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, the letter to the Thessalonians describes for us what it's like to be in a real church or what a real Christian is like. And now into chapter 2, it describes for us what real ministers are like. So there you go, I'm in the firing line. Now, what do we mean by minister? Well, it certainly means people like me. And there is no wriggle room today for people who do jobs like me. It also means those in our church who are elders. It means those who are training to be ministers It means small group leaders. It means those who teach our children. And you can run on with the application to encompass all. After all, those who just joined the church promised to use their gifts in serving us. And that word ministry is to serve. But that said, it does have an edge to those in leadership, in church, in whatever way. Paul writes primarily to encourage this church in Thessalonica. And so if what he says describes what you see me and the elders doing, Well, you should be steady, because they're doing the right thing. If what is described you do not see, then start a petition or leave. I don't mean that as a kind of flippant thing, but you need to be where there is real ministry. It's true, isn't it? It just makes sense. And much of what I say from this letter will encourage us. I want to encourage the elders. I want to encourage the small group leaders. I want to encourage those who are training. They were trying to train you in the right stuff. But there are two kind of edges to this. If it doesn't describe us, then we need to think, why not? The other edge to this is we need to have the The thinking minds to understand that what is not real often looks like it's real. It's not kind of black and white, it's kind of stuff that feels or looks nearly real, but it's not. Sometimes I think when I teach on the Apostle Paul's ministry, which is essentially what I'm doing today, sometimes I wonder just how many churches would Paul get a job in? But he's real. So what are the marks of real ministry? Now, you'll see on the sheet there are eight points to this sermon. I bet when you saw that, you just despaired. Eight's a very dangerous number of points to have because it's not a multiple of seven or three. But that's what there are, so let's not try to systematize this and carve it up in any other way, and I'll try and get through them in good time. One, real ministry makes a real difference. Verse 1, for you know yourselves, brothers, that are coming to you is not in vain. Real ministry makes a real difference. Just glance up the page to the end of chapter 1, verse 9. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. People have been converted. And verse 8 of chapter 1, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you. People were going out and telling the gospel. Real ministry makes a real difference. And that makes sense. If you bring the real gospel message into a community, people's lives will change. Now, here is the moment where we build in a whole lot of caveats or cautions, like our job in ministry, whether me or you as a small group leader or a Sunday club teacher is to be faithful. God brings spiritual fruit. Now that's true. But let's not let it let us off the hook. If a church is united, if a church is committed to the simple gospel and the word of God, if it is teaching that from the tiny tots right through the Sunday services, there will be evidence of a real difference. Not necessarily in big numbers. I'd love to see more people become Christians. But I'm looking at one who just has. And that's good to see. Regularly. It's a sign of authenticity in a church, real conversions. It's good to see people periodically standing up here and becoming members of a church. Now, I run risks in saying this, and you can see what they might be. You can persuade people to stand in a up here and join a church who aren't real Christians. It's good to have a revolving door at the back, people going out to other parts of the country, out to other parts of the world, out to serve the gospel in other places. I would love it and just to say this to you, if you, none of you leave, one of the hardest things for me as a minister is, Sally and I have been here long enough now, seven and a half years, we're trying to count up the number of people who have gone through the revolving door and it's... Five, six hundred people? It's hard when that happens. And I feel that, this endless revolving door. But there's a reality and a authenticity to that. Here's a great verse. One or two of you are here and you've just taught uh, Sunday Club. And uh, every time I have a look into Sunday Club... I think, goodness me, you guys deserve a medal. Sometimes it's crowd control. Here's a great verse. I find this a great verse as a preacher. Isaiah chapter 55. My word shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which is accordance with my purpose. So when you teach the gospel. When you preach the gospel, or when you teach the Word of God, or when you preach the Word of God, it cannot return empty. There are 130 people in this room. 129 might be asleep. But in one mind and one heart, the Word of God is working. It cannot help itself. But if, here's the logic you do not teach the gospel to the children, you do not teach the Word of God, then the promise isn't true. Because it's not the Word of God. It's not the gospel. And it may well return empty. Real ministry makes a real difference. Just to say to those of you who teach Sunday club I, as a minister with three kids, I know it does uh, worry you when the minister's children are in your class, but let me just encourage you that it's making a real difference in these three lives at least. The Word of God is never, ever taught in vain. Now, there are all manners of ministries out there that you could exercise. And notice through this list of eight, speaking, 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 speaking runs through them all. There are all manners of things that are more trendy, that are more designed to build numbers in a church, but it's the Word of God spoken, the gospel of God spoken that will never, ever, ever be in vain. Number two, bold in declaring the gospel in spite of opposition. Real ministry is bold in declaring the gospel in spite of opposition, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. And Paul is recalling how he and Silas had come to Thessalonica from Philippi. In Philippi, they had seen great stuff going on, conversions, but they had been opposed strongly. And the same dynamic had happened in Thessalonica, advance and opposition. Now, what do we learn from that? That the advance of the gospel and the opposition, the pushback, go together. The gospel advances in the midst of such conflict. That's normal. It stands to reason. Let me explain why. If the gospel is powerful enough to lead people to turn to God from idols and to serve the one true and living God, if the gospel is powerful enough to turn a life on its head, if the gospel is powerful enough to take these three people who stood up here and totally reorientate the way they live, then that gospel will be as powerfully opposed and rejected by many. Now, the opposition they experienced in Thessalonica and Philippi was very different from that which we experience. But the dynamic is no different in our culture as we share the gospel. The hardest question these Three took was, do you promise, depending on the grace of God, to publicly profess your loyalty to Jesus? The public profession of one's loyalty to Jesus, individually and corporately as a church today, is not without opposition. Never has been. And it takes boldness to proclaim the gospel in the face of that. just as a footnote, it is only the gospel of God. Now, what is the gospel of God? It is Christ died for our sins. It is only the gospel of God that produces dynamic responses. It is only the gospel of God that is accepted or rejected. It is only the gospel of God that turns a life round and is pushed back against. If you change the gospel, if you take the edges off it, if you loosen your grip or commitment as a church to the Word of God, well, the conflict may well go. But so will the transformation of people's lives. There won't be conflict and there won't be conversions. And that's a serious thing. Now, if you speak the real gospel, there will be conflict and opposition. So, where does the boldness to speak come from? Well, it comes from conviction. One of the most encouraging things somebody has ever said to me after a Sunday morning service, and all manner of things are said to me after Sunday morning services, like tuck your shirt in. The most encouraging thing somebody said to me, or one of the most encouraging things, somebody who was not a Christian said, I don't accept what you said. But what struck me is you believe it with all your heart. Conviction makes you bold. The conviction born out of the fact that you believe that what you are saying is true. Conviction born out of the fact that it matters. So you can't be convicted about something that's not the real thing. You're only convicted about what is true or real or matters to you more than anything else. Conviction also comes from the consciousness that the people you are speaking to need to hear the message. Conviction comes from the promises in God's Word that however strong the opposition is to the advance of the gospel, the advance will always prevail in the end. Conviction comes from the fact that The Bible tells us that in the end, only authentic ministry, only authentic church, only the authentic gospel will prevail. But conviction comes most of all from the fact that our boldness, look what Paul says, is in our God. Boldness is a supernatural God-given thing the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So when I preach on a Sunday morning to a group of people who largely want to hear what I'm going to say, is that fair? Entirely then, okay. When I preach the gospel on a Sunday to a group of people who want to hear, then I still need the power of God to do so. And when you speak the gospel one-on-one to people who do not want to hear, you need the boldness that comes from the indwelling Spirit of God within you. And all Christians are given that. Number three, real ministry is approved by God and trusted with the gospel And speaks to please God. For our appeal, verse 3, Paul writes, in other words, our call to you to believe, our appeal, does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Verse 3 is a wonderful description. Real ministry does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Expressed positively, real ministry is truthful, honorable, straight, and above board. How powerful a thing it is in life, say, for example, in politics, when you hear that which is truthful, honorable, straight, and above board. In public life, it is powerful. And how true it is in the church real ministry is truthful, honorable, straight, above board. Now, Paul's credentials for ministry, he says, are that he has been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. His approval by God, I think, is a reference to his apostolic authority. And because he has been approved by God, he is entrusted with the gospel. Or in other words, because he has been so approved, he is therefore entrusted to go and tell. Now, is it a mark of real ministry for a minister like me or an elder or a small group leader or a Sunday club teacher? Is it fair to say that they need to be approved by God in order to be entrusted with the gospel? The answer to that is 100% yes. So what does it mean for someone who speaks And who purports to teach to be approved by God? What does it look like on the minister's CV? Well, listen to these words from Paul to Timothy. Timothy is the first generation of Christian ministers after the apostles. So, what he writes to Timothy has a straight line application to us. He says this to Timothy Do your best. In other words, you're not going to do this perfectly all the time or depending on the grace of God, present yourself to God as one approved by God. What does that mean? A worker who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly handles the word of truth. So what does it mean to be approved by God in ministry, It means somebody who rightly handles the word of truth. And literally, the Greek in Timothy is someone who cuts straight with the word of God, who does not add to it nor subtract from it, and who teaches it faithfully. That's what it means to be approved by God and therefore entrusted with the gospel. So the right question to ask anyone engaged in ministry: Do you believe the Bible to be the supreme rule of faith and life? Yes, we'll go and teach it. So do not let anyone near this lectern if you do not think they rightly handle the word of truth. Start a petition. I don't mean that flippantly, it's true. <laughs> that, that's why we spend so much time training our ministry associates and leaders in training to rightly handle the word of truth. Because that's what it means to be approved by God and entrusted with the gospel and to lead the church. And it will never be the trendiest thing in town. It will never Get you onto Christian TV. Maybe not. But you will have the approval of God and His trust to teach the kids or the adults. The end of verse 4 is very significant, another dimension to what it means to be approved by God. So we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. You see the logic, a person who is approved by God is a person who seeks the approval of God, not the approval of men. It is God who tests our hearts, and so we speak, not to please man, but to please God. That doesn't mean to say a kind of stridency that says, look, God says this, so I'm going to say this to you anyway. The best example of that in Scripture is a man like Daniel, who didn't fight every battle, but he lived his life with his conscious eye to the vertical. His name means, God is my judge. God is my judge. God is my judge. God is my judge. judge. Four, not seeking personal advancement or reputation, verses five and six. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, that we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Real ministry does not seek personal advancement or reputation. The way to seek personal advancement or reputation is to how, what? Flatter people, say what they want you to say. Or to play to the crowd, and for a Christian leader, a minister, an elder, a small group leader seeking personal advancement or reputation is such a risk. All of us want to be well thought of and well known. Now, that's true. <laughs> Let me just be really honest with you. Last uh, summer, I, I went to speak at Keswick, yeah, and there's thousands of people, you're on tellies everywhere. I was suitably humbled by the fact that my shirt tail was hanging out and everybody on the telly could see it. And my wife said, I told you to tuck it in. (laughs) But there was a bit in my heart that wanted at the end of that evening with all these thousands of people to come up to me and say that was the best sermon I've ever heard. I'd be lying if I said that wasn't true. Sometimes we need encouragement and affirmation. And that week I met one or two Christian leaders, people like Jonathan Lamb, Peter Maiden, who head up these ministries, and you could not meet more humble, grounded gospel people. Because the conference platform is dangerous if you're not. And the lectern in a church is dangerous if you're not. And leading a small group is dangerous if you seek the approval of men. Now Paul had plenty credentials. He was the missionary to the Gentiles. And yet he ended his ministry to Timothy alone, abandoned, deserted. Everyone in Asia deserted me. That's a lot of ministers. And he pleads with Timothy in his last letter Timothy, you are not going to desert me too. Is that because Paul at the end of his life was wrong and unreal or did he remain the real thing? Just notice a detail in the text uh, just at the end there. Uh, Paul uh, really puts himself on the line with these Christians in Thessalonica. He says, For we never came with words of flattery. As you know, he throws it out to the crowd, as you know. Yeah, or with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. As you know, God is our witness. When people see authentic ministry, they know it. More importantly, God knows it. Five, committed affectionate, loving, caring, sharing the gospel in our lives with others. Now. This is wonderful here. Much of what Paul has said thus far about real ministry suggests perhaps a toughness, a single minus, boldness in clearing the gospel in spite of opposition. You know, the kind of mindset that come what may, somebody will stand up behind a lectern and in spite of the opposition railed against them, they will boldly declare the gospel in the face of all opponents. Or they will boldly do it in evangelism. They'll just push back against the opposition. Well, Paul just pulls that rug out from under your feet when he speaks in verses 7 and 8 about alongside toughness in ministry, there needs to be gentleness. When he writes to Timothy in his second letter, he describes ministry as being like an athlete, a farmer, a soldier, a worker… He says to Timothy, Have no illusions about the world and the worldly church. Hold fast to the Word of God. But alongside that, there is the need to be gentle, like a nursing mother. And in verses 7 and 8, Paul complements that toughness which is necessary with a kind of different brushstroke on the canvas. You know, there are very few people in ministry who are tough and gentle. Gentle and tough. There are lots of people who are tough without being gentle or gentle without being tough. Clear, convicted, gentle, that orbit of brushstrokes on the canvas. Daniel's a good example. It's not sentimental, this picture of the nursing mother, but it is affectionate. During the first service, a number of our mums were called out to crash because their babies had lost the plot. It's not sentimental being a mother to a newborn child. At 3 a.m. Not at all. It's not sentimental, but affectionate to be up with your kid at 3 a.m. if they cannot sleep. It's real. It's nurture. Whether your child is six months old or 50. We were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother... What does a nursing mother do? Feeds the child. Teaching here is at the heart of it. So being an affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, but you'd become very dear to us. Real ministry means sharing your life with others. What does it look like in a church like Chalmers, a small group leader, or a couple leading a small group, caring for those in their group, in a committed, selfless, sacrificial, loving, dedicated way. It is about being with them and for them. It is about knowing them really well. It's about finding out, this is a very common thing in a church, finding out that people in the church are struggling. You look them in the eye after the You don't talk about it because other people don't know, but you look them in the eye and they know that you know and you feel it. It doesn't just evacuate from your mind. It's real. It's caring. It's teaching them. And it's all consuming often day and night. Now, that's not a prescription to flog yourself to death in ministry. My elders are quite good at warning me about that. Rightly so. But it is a prescription for sometimes coming quite near to doing that in ministry. Because that's what Paul says you need to do from time to time. My elders need to tell me that, and I need to tell some of them that. But equally, I need to encourage them that some of them spend an awful lot of their time just relentlessly caring for you. That's real. Working hard so as not to be a burden, verse 9. We're getting there. We're doing well. Number 6. Your lunch won't be late. Verse 9. Real ministry means working hard so as not to be a burden. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, Paul is being really specific here to his own situation. When Paul and Silas were in Thessalonica they uh, did not get any payment. I think that's what he means. They worked as tent makers in the evening so as not to be a burden to the Thessalonian uh, Christians, so that no one could accuse them of seeking financial gain. Now, don't get any ideas. You've got to pay your staff, but not too much. That's true of ministry, you see. Traditionally, ministry has been stipended. What that means is that people in ministry are doing so vocationally. You need to give them a life and a living, but you do not incentivize them with financial gain. Ever, ever, ever. One of the most dangerous things in a church is a message of prosperity and a desire for prosperity for those in leadership. And that's being debated and discussed in our country at the moment. That is not real ministry. It's dangerous. So don't seek monetary reward in ministry and work hard. Not too hard sometimes, but graft. Verse 10, holy, righteous, and blameless in conduct. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. So imagine a minister or a small group leader or an elder standing up here behind this lectern and saying, you are witnesses, you lot out there, how holy and blameless and upright I am. If I'm not and you know it, well, you should have another petition to get me out. But you know the true test of how holy and blameless and upright I am is what God knows. Because you don't really know, but He does. And I don't really know about you in leadership, but God does. It's very exacting, isn't it? And that's why all the promises our new members took were prefaced by depending on God's grace, depending on God's grace, because we fail all the time. Holy, righteous, and blameless in conduct. And then eight, finally, exhorting, encouraging, and charging others to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Paul has talked about mums. He now talks about dads. I guess in our homes, these duties are shared. (laughs) Although it is true, I have to say that I have got up less times at three in the morning than my darling wife. (laughs) And she's got more patience. And she cooks better than me. But of course, these things are shared in a home, aren't they? And in a church. Verses 11 and 12. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. We're going to do some proverbs in the the autumn. People in ministry should not exasperate those under their care, but exhort them. You should feel on a Sunday spurred on, not by smart rhetoric, but by truth. Spurred on for another week. Encouraged. Sometimes charged, sometimes directly charged from God's word do not do that or do this. After all, we have been called into the everlasting kingdom of God, so live like a citizen of heaven. Now, that's Paul's list of what real ministry is. Let me summarize in this way. If that is true of this church, and there will be many ways that it is, I want to say that to you at least, then be steadied and be encouraged. It may not be the smartest church in town, it may not be the slickest, it may be dire. But what matters, in the end, is it real? Because what's real will stand the test of time. And what will be left standing is what is real. If it's not true of us, and these sermons are great for those who preach them to examine their hearts, If there is a mismatch, for example, between what God knows about us and what we know about each other, let's try to narrow that mismatch. If it's not true, well, examine our hearts. And let's never be sucked into, let's never be sucked into the kind of mindset that is Or can be so dominant in our culture that everything is fine, that everything is okay. It's not. It's not true. So let's hope there are no petitions after the service to find a new minister. But if you need to, and you are living in a discerning church, that's exactly the kind of thing you should do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this strong yet encouraging description of what real and true ministry is. We pray that it will be true of us in the church, ministers, elders, staff, small group leaders, Sunday club leaders, the very atmosphere of our church may be true of those who have joined our church today, and may it be true across the length and breadth of our nation as people minister in different contexts. May this be the atmosphere of churches up and down the land. We pray for that combination of clarity and toughness and gentleness and nurture and discipline and encouragement, exhortation, that whole kaleidoscope that becomes the true, defined, complete portrait of Christian ministry. And may we at Chalmers be just like this and more and more for Jesus' sake. Amen.